Genesis chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this is week number three in our series on gender and the gospel. And if you are just joining us and are kind of surprised to hear that, uh, we, I'm not going to do all my like caveats and all the stuff that I've done, preliminary work on this. You can go back and check our website and catch up with us if you'd like to hear that. Um, but I want to start here. It's been nearly 25 years since Saturday Night Live had a feature repeating skit called It's Pat. Does anybody remember this? If Pat, it's Pat featured this androgynous person who uh, the running kind of gag of this skit was you could never tell, nobody could tell what Pat was, right? And so Pat, so that's how Pat talked. And there was always just this real awkwardness. Now, this skit would never be made today. This is not politically correct anyway, and they would be crushed on Saturday Night Live for making this skit. Uh, but it's, it's kind of instructive, actually, to look back at some of those because it highlights the three things about gender. Uh, one is that gender is pervasive. What's funny about the, the It's Pat skits uh, is that they all take place in relatively normal circumstances, like doctor's offices or in elevators or in uh, the gym. You know, they're, they're all sort of everyday circumstances. And yet, when the people around Pat are trying to figure out how to interact with Pat, everything seems to break down. It's, it's confusing. Gender is pervasive in social interaction. It's everywhere we look. Uh, second, gender is instructive. So again, uh, with Pat, the this, this skit communicates how quickly that basic human interactions can grind to a halt when we don't know what to call someone. And so always people in the skit are trying to like 
uh, play word plays or, or kind of corner Pat into like giving a, some kind of clues to like, what is Pat? And Pat is like this escape artist and always gets out of this, the, the, the trap. And then finally, it shows us how gender is so hard to talk about. Have you noticed that? Gender is really hard to talk about. In fact, on the It's Pat skits again, uh, everybody, Pat seems blissfully unaware of how awkward it is for everyone else. And while everybody else is struggling, Pat is just fine. And, and, and I think gender is really hard for us to talk about for a good reason. Now, if you listen to uh, news media, if you listen to our culture at large, you can feel that tension even in reporting, even in how this is discussed by mainline news media outlets who have very different views on gender than the Bible. But even so, it's awkward. And I think that's for a reason. Biblically, we can answer this. One of the, the reason that gender is so hard to talk about is God is so hard to talk about. We're, we're beings made in God's image. We are incredibly complex. If you've ever been in any relationship with any other person, you know that. Like Human beings are incredibly complex, uh, and gender is hard to talk about because God is hard to talk about. That's why we stumble over this. Um, this, this morning, as we look at Genesis chapter 2, uh, it helps us understand how gender functions in relationships. And I, I want to go re- very simple outline, but I want to encourage you to take notes this morning, um, not because I have like um, spellbinding talk in front, of us, in front of us, but because I want you to think about questions. I want you to interact. In this whole series, we're asking you to think and engage and really wrestle with this together as a community. So I'm going to ask you to take notes, even write down questions or objections in your bulletin. But I'm going to talk on, on these kind of four ideas. Um, we're going to talk about equality, asymmetry, unity, and diversity. Equality, asymmetry, unity, and diversity. Let's, let's start here. Now, I think um, equality, the Bible gets a really bad rap on gender. Uh, the Bible historically, is easy for people to pick at on gender. For example, there's a book by uh, Anita Diamat called The Red Tent. Uh, came out about 10, 15 years ago. And the storyline is about how the matriarchs of the Bible were incredibly oppressed people, how they were put down. This is a highly patriarchal book. And those women were oppressed, and the only way they escaped their oppression was secretly embracing Canaanite mystery religions, namely um, Baal and Asherah. Um, and that's a popular storyline, and it plays really well to modern audiences, and yet it misses something really critical. Because I wonder how much Anita Diamat did her studies on what life was really like for women in Canaanite mystery religions like Asherah and Baal. I wonder how life-affirming she would feel it would be to be a temple prostitute or have to take part in child sacrifice. Regular aspects of the surrounding cultures all around Israel in the second millennium B.C., that was very common. And, and she ignores one particular statement that we just camped on the last two Sundays from Genesis 1.27. Men and women, both made in God's image and likeness. Let us make man in our image and likeness, male and female, he created them. It's a statement of surprising countercultural equality in second millennium B.C. I mean, this is, this is 
very different from everything that you read in any surrounding culture. And this is stated and restated and redone over and over in the Old Testament. So in Genesis chapter 1, we get this statement of incredible quality, both men and women made in God's image. It's Genesis 5, we read this last week, both men and women created in God's image. In, jo- in the book of, of um, Job, the oldest written book in the, in the Old Testament, written at the time of the patriarchs, um, little details are kind of interesting. So Job leaves all of inheritance to both his daughters and his sons equally. That is unheard of in ancient Near Eastern literature. There is nothing like that. Job leads, leaves, with, without making a distinction for gender, leaves inheritance to his sons and daughters equally. In, in Exodus chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the statements, the two, um, the two versions of the Ten Commandments, the longest commandment on Sabbath, both includes this provision. You know, it, it commands households to make sure that uh, slaves and children and sojourners among them obeyed the Sabbath and did no work. One of the, the things, though, that's missing, fr- missing from that list is wives are not included on that list. Now, that is not because the women were supposed to be working. It's because the men and the women in the household, the husband and the wife, were equally, char- equally charged as ha- in their household for making sure the household practiced Sabbath, not just the guy. Um, and besides one explicit affirmation of men and women both equally made in God's image, besides two countercultural practices in the Old Testament that affirm like there's difference, there are number three, all these powerful portrayals of women in spirituality and exercising their faith. And these are littered throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. I'm just going to run through a list and I'm going to lean hard on the women part of this because I don't think we need help seeing that guys participated in some of these things. And I have scripture references. So if you want to arm wrestle me after the service, I could take you down. So, uh, here, so here, here they go. Um, women pray to God. Their prayers are heard and answered and preserved. Women receive appearances from God. Female servants are equally valued under the law as male servants, as are women in general. Women are healed. Women bring sacrifices. Women become Nazarites and take vows. Women parent children with equal standing and honor as their husbands. Women are educated by a rabbi. Women receive salvation, are equally clothed in Christ. Women participate in the Bible, um, in Jesus' ministry. One woman in the Bible is referred to as a disciple of Jesus. Women serve as Jesus' parable illustrations, uniformly good illustrations, I might add. Women are prophetesses, uh, prophetesses, receiving and delivering divine revelation. Women receive God's gifts in worship. Women serve in public worship. Women serve as the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Women are vital in ministry in the church called fellow workers. Let me push on this a little bit more. Women receive the same Holy Spirit as men, the same spiritual gifts as men. Jesus clearly welcomed women into his ministry, blessed the women who sat at his feet, anointed him for burial, and understood his identity and ministry. In fact, what's fascinating is over and over, the guys in the Gospels don't get it, and the women do, uniformly. Again, Jesus' relationship with women was countercultural. But what about Paul? I mean, Paul, another one, man, he gets a bad rap, tire tracks on that guy's back, because we throw him under the bus, but he gets a bad rap with women, but 
He greets them in his letters as fellow workers. He compares himself to a nursing mother in 1 Thessalonians 2. And he writes the signature statement on equality of men and women uh, before God in Galatians 3.28. Here in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. That is an incredible statement of equality. So let's not beat up Paul too bad. He got some stuff right. So you could say then that the Bible has feminist themes, especially if you're talking about really first wave feminism, the 1960s and 70s, which rightly said women are equal. Not third wave feminism that's come out recently, which is postmodern and can't even call rape a bad thing because it's all about power dynamics. It has no definition of good or evil. But Rutgers professor Gary Rensberg observes, open your Bible at random and you'll notice something striking. Female characters abound, and it's not simply a lot of women, it's a lot of strong women. These are women who are the antithesis of what we might expect from a patriarchal society. They are not passive, demure, timid, and submissive, but active, bold, fearless, and assertive. They are not what you would expect based on contemporaneous Near Eastern literature in which women generally do not play leading roles in the narrative. You see? Equal image bearers, man and woman. And yet, that's not the end. The Bible goes on to assert something else about men and women in Genesis chapter 2 that's very striking and a little uncomfortable for us. Um, Genesis goes on to show us equal but not equivalent, not interchangeable parts, not exactly the same. So we read two sections here from Genesis 2, 5 through 8. Genesis 2 is sort of a second creation story, drills down to like ground level. Genesis 1 is like 30,000 feet. Genesis 2 is on the ground. And Genesis 2, 5 through 8 details the, the creation of the first male, the first man. And then Genesis 8, 2, 18 through 25 details the creation of the first woman. And those two separate stories show us there's something different going on. There's something different. These are not interchangeable. They are like but unlike. Equal but not interchangeable. Um, do you know what you know what um, symmetry is? Symmetry is when, okay, you do this cutting out a heart, right? You, you fold the paper in half, and you cut around the outline, and then you unfold it, and the two sides are exactly the same. Uh, we like symmetry. Symmetry is pleasing to the eye, and it's, uh, it, 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 it looks good. But asymmetry is when you cut out a shape, they're not exactly the same. And we don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with this. Um, here's what we read in verse 18, that there's something incomplete in God's creation after Adam. There's a problem in the gardens. First problem, right? It's, and uh, Adam's alone, and God says it's not good for him to be alone. And yet God's way he resolves that is not by making another of the same kind. It's not like Adam and his other buddy Adam. Buddy Adam. Right? He, makes, he makes a different, one that's similar but different, one that's more like this, like asymmetrical, like but unlike, equal but not exactly interchangeable, um, asymmetrical. Now, um, I, want you, I want you to think about this. Uh, in January in the United States, uh, we saw the highest number of women ever elected to law, law, as lawmakers being sworn in. And it has a cause for celebration. 
And I want you to hear me say, that's a real big cause for celebration. But here's the question. Do we know why? Do we know why that's a cause for celebration? I'm not so sure we do. Um, There was an article that came out in 2013 by a a journalist for the New York Times uh, named Maureen Dowd, and and she wrote an article where she was uh, critiquing during the Obama years the lack of women in higher office in our country. And uh, the title of the article was, We Offer More Than Ankles, Boys. And, but what is, what's interesting as you read through her article is that her main argument is fairness. Like, it, it needs to be equal, men and women in high office, because it needs to be fair. Now, that's not a bad argument, but she doesn't, there's something missing from that. She doesn't go on to say, well, here's what women uniquely bring to the high office. There are, there are traits, there are aspects of what they see and how they approach life that are needed in high office. And she doesn't do any of that. And why doesn't she do that? Because she's smart. Because she knows if I outline any ways that I say, these women have these particular things that are bringing to this high office, I'm gonna get, my article's going to get shot full of holes. Because what you hear in the, in the media is men and women were practically interchangeable. We're exactly the same. Well, let's, let's think about that a bit. Um, If men and women are exactly the same, why does it matter that we would need women in high office? I mean, it's it's almost as ridiculous as saying, we need to make sure there are as many brunettes as as blondes in high office. Nobody thinks that, right? We're not looking at it that way. And yet, it's hard to articulate in the national media anything beyond fairness is a reason for this. Because we've got to hold on to the men and women are interchangeable, exactly the same. And when we do, we miss something big. We miss something very important. We have an answer from Scripture to that. We actually have an answer that's more compelling that says, there are, yes, this is cause for celebration because there are unique things that those women are bringing to high office. And that is worth celebrating. Instead, see, the, the Bible offers us something that is really worth holding on to. Now, this is where, before I tell you what that is, this is where everybody falls in the deep hole. And I'm going to be careful in this series to walk very carefully around the deep hole. Because this is the deep hole that everybody falls into, is in making a statement of qualities that are particular or typing the male gender versus the female gender, uh, typing uh, men versus women, we, what happens is, there's usually this, this men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Uh, essential qualities, a list of essential qualities. That we say, this is what makes a man. And over here, this is what makes a woman. But the essential traits, I've found, always fall short. And it falls short for two reasons. One I'm going to get to now, one I'm going to get to in the last point. Uh, first, here's one of the reasons that, that the essentials list of what makes a man, what makes a woman doesn't work is that the Bible never does it. The Bible never does that. The, the, ne- the Bible never distills masculinity down to these traits, femininity down to these traits. Um, there's no distinction of spiritual gifts by gender. Um, there's no call. It doesn't call men to be more masculine. It doesn't call women to be more feminine. It never says, be masculine, this is what this means. Be feminine, this is what this means. Um, the Bible says ne- men are more gifted and better at leadership, so that's why they're in these roles. Women are better at hospitality, so they make the brownies. 
you can laugh, okay? I'm trying to be light with something that's hard, right? Um, and here's the thing, is the Bible doesn't do it, we shouldn't either. Uh, I, I find, though, if, if we're going to do that, if you're going to try to make a list of essential qualities, this is what you have to do. If you're going to make a list of like, this is what makes a man, this is what makes a woman, this is what it really has to be. It has to be qualities and traits that are timeless, that work in every culture, every time, every place. And what I find, and I'm going to drop some names, what I find among uh, John Eldridge, Wild at Heart guy, what I find among Mark Driscoll, what I find among lots of well-meaning Bible teachers and Christian leaders is they come up with surprising characteristics that reflect their own culture and preferences. So what you get in a lot of cases in American culture is what feels like John Wayne combined with John the Baptist. (laughs) Or you get a combo tray of the mom from Leave it to Beaver with Mary the mother of Jesus. And, And, you know, if it just falls flat, it doesn't work because it's got to work. I think about like um, a woman living in Nepal reading Wild at Heart. What? You know, first century Palestinian uh, Jewish convert to Christianity listening to Mark Driscoll. God, what, what are we talking about? Like these things have to be true. If we're going to do this, has to be all cultures, all times, and all places, or else we're not being faithful to Scripture, because Scripture speaks in the purity of the gospel over and over to all people in all times and all places. We have to be careful of that. So, um, if the Bible doesn't do it, we shouldn't either. Rather, the Bible doesn't define gender essentialist traits, but rather holds these things up, holds up men and women as different and unified in relationship. It calls us to relationship, not essentialist characteristics, but dynamic actions, gender specialties, if you will, roles that we assume, actions that we do. That's what's pictured here in Genesis 2. The man is incomplete. He needs a helper uh, together where they are different and yet unified, and in that unity, they are on mission. They are called together into this God's calling for both of them to image him in the world. And it's, it's in relationship. This is what I'm, the, the gong I'm just going to beat over and over with you the next couple of weeks. Gender is for relationship. Uh, gender is a gift. It's a speciality be, built on top of, on the platform of our biology. Remember me saying this two weeks ago? It's built on the platform of our biology. It's not the same. It's related to it. It's not the same. And it's meant for us in relationship to fulfill our calling. It, 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 that's what it's for. Um, can I tell you this? Do you know what an incredible thing it is to be a Christian? I mean, there, there's so many reasons. It's an incredible thing to be a follower, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and w- one of the ones I want to highlight this morning is that we have an answer to something that no one else has an answer to. And it's this. Why, why should we be in relationships? Why do we have relationships? Now, there are people who would never agree with most anything that I preach from this book. And yet, if, if you press them hard, I'm like, what's the most valuable thing in your life? They may like their car, but it's not their car. They may like their clothes, it's not their clothes. They may like their house, it's not their house. You know, there are all these things which we value, but at the end of the day, what do they say? It's those people. 
It's, it's, it's that group of friends. It's my, my parents. It's my children. It's my spouse. It's, it's relationships that we value more than anything else. And Christians alone have a reason for why that is. If you ask a materialist atheist, you ask a Buddhist, you ask a Muslim, you ask an agnostic, why do we have relationships? Ultimately, they can't answer the question. There is no social evolutionary purpose to having relationships. It, it really doesn't move forward the human species in any way. But it's an amazing thing to be a Christian because this book tells us about a God who's in relationship and therefore creates us for a relationship with Him and with one another. Relationships are designed by them, and they're hardwired into you, and gender gender, is given as a gift to facilitate relationships. It's, it's one of the things to enhance our relationships on mission for God. Now, let me, let me show this to you, because you're like, that's a fine thing to say. What, what, where do I get this? Uh, this is in so many passages. Let's, let's start here in, in Genesis, the creation story. Genesis 2 and onward tells us this. Karl Barth, not a guy I normally quote a lot from this pulpit, uh, says, God is in relationship, so too is the man created by him. This was explained by why the Bible's gender-specific passages always concern the practice of individuals in relationship, not essential qualities. Um, so in 1 Corinthians 11, one of the hardest texts in the New Testament, we're going to cover it in three weeks, says this crazy thing. Um, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Gender is for relationships. For example, in um, Ephesians chapter 5, which is the the signature um, passage on marriage in the New Testament, a very full explanation of, uh, of marriage, it doesn't point to what a woman is, or what a man is, it points to what a man does and a woman does. It's about function. Uh, gender is more about what we do than who we are. It, it's more about what we do. It's not an essentialist list of traits. And um, it is only in relationship that we really see gender played out. And not just in marriage. Like we're going to talk about in the church as well in four weeks when we get to the context. Um, this also explains, though, why, why we have an affinity for gender-specific groups. You know, why is it that going on a guy's weekend or a girl's night out, uh, there's something about that that makes you feel sane? Like, you're around other people of your same gender, and you're like, all those weirdos are not here, and I feel understood in ways that maybe I don't feel in some of my primary relationships. Why is that? I think that has to do more with the absence of the other than the presence of the same. It has more to do with the absence of the opposite sex than the presence of the same. There's something about being in those environments that makes uh, men, men's only weekend, we feel masculine, you know, and women and girls night out feel more feminine in some ways and that we're, we're understood, and yet that's not the model for the church, the family, or society. Those are places where we may feel known, And they may enhance our ability to step back into those relationships, but that's not God's model. Gender is for relationship. Um, I'm not a man, and my wife's not a woman because she goes and sees Pride and Prejudice, and I go see Marvel movies, right? It's not based on preferences. That's not what makes me a man. Um, Gender is not something we are so much as something we do. 
we exercise, we live into. Woman is not without man. Man is not without woman. Gender is for the other gender. Uh, This explains why Christians find less agreement about these silly lists of what makes a man, what makes a woman, and more agreement about what we're called to do together, about what we're called to do together. Gender is about other giving sacrifice, leadership and love. More on that on two weeks, I promise. Just can't do it all today. But the second problem with the gender uh, essentialist lists that we come up with, the categories of that, is we end up destroying this diversity that God enjoys across creating two equal but asymmetrical gender bearers, gender image bearers. Um, So let's think about this. When we look at men and women, male and female, the physical differences, we find a great deal of similarity and non-discrete differences. That is, besides genitalia, sex-specific traits are actually not that all reliably specific. You know, they're they're definitely different. There statistically, but the distributions between the two overlap. So there's a study done by two uh, researchers, two psychology professors, uh, Janet Hyde and Nita McKinley of University of Wisconsin-Madison, and they do meta-research on gender and its expression, the differences between men and women in development, and they try to uh, factor in deviations for um, bias, sample size, changing social attitudes. And this is what they found. They found that women tend to be better at verbal fluency but not always. Men tend to be better at being able to visualize a 3D object in their head and turn it around, but not always. Um, Girls are usually better at a younger age of recognizing emotion in another person's face, but not always. Uh, Boys, on average, perform better at math in school, but there are plenty of exceptions to this. Uh, You can see this in every sort of female-male difference from skin thickness to sleepwalking. Uh, Some sex differences are quite real, but there's so much overlap. There's so much overlap, and we have to be really careful here. This is really important for us to think about and get right. So let's let's, let's talk about average height, men and women. Um, The average height for a man is, is 5 foot 10 inches, 70 inches. The average height for a woman is five foot four inches, okay, which is 64 inches. Now, um, there's, on, but the difference, um, though distinct, it's, it's quite small, and it really depends on how you look at the data, right? So there are those who want to emphasize the equality of the genders who would say, see, men and women are about the same. They're all between five and six feet tall. And those who want to emphasize the difference who would say, see, men are always taller. They're, they're, they're taller. Um, they're definitely different. And both are right, in a sense, because they're looking at data that overlaps, right? They look at data that overlaps. Um, to say that men tend to be taller can be shown to be not always the case. There's going to be a guy who's four foot ten. And to say women tend to be shorter can always be disproven. There's going to be a woman who's going to be seven feet tall, right? There are always differences. See, what we find is while there are some differences there's a lot of overlap in the genders. This is why the novelist Dorothy Sayers used to challenge our language. She used to say, uh, you know, opposite sex doesn't really capture what the Bible says about the genders. Uh, She said, you know, maybe it shouldn't be the opposite sex, but the neighboring sex. You know, like but unlike, close by, similar and yet 
asymmetric. Now, I appreciate that. I love that. Opposite sex doesn't include the sense of Genesis 2. <coughs> the overlap of the genders, the diversity, the wide array of different types of men and different types of women is something we encounter, and it's really important that we understand and actually hold on to in the church for three reasons. First is um, the overlap in the genders makes communication and connection possible between us. Second, um, the overlap in the genders displays God's love of variety. And third, the overlap in the genders makes room in this room for the exceptional among us. So let me explain each of those. The overlap in the genders makes connection possible. Um, God wanted men and women to be able to relate to each other. So there's overlap. There are similarities. There are ways that there's points of connection. If it really were um, opposite sexes, it wouldn't be men from Mars, women from Venus. It'd be like uh, men are from Mars, women are from um, MACS 0647-JD, the furthest known galaxy, right? And we, would, we experience bafflement now at one another. You know, like there are times you're like, you're crazy. Like y- y'all, all, you know, I don't understand. And yet there's points of connection because there's overlap and that's purposeful. The second thing, the overlap in the genders displays God's love of variety. Um, God just seems so tickled about the variety of men and women in this world. Uh, um, a woman who excels in, in mixed martial arts <coughs> is not less of a woman. Uh, a man with an eye for decorating is not less of a man. And it is essential for the church of Jesus Christ to recognize this. Um, a woman who loves fixing engines, uh, a guy who loves fixing dinner, nothing wrong with that. Those are not messed up. Uh, your little girls who like wrestling and your boys who like unicorns. Nothing wrong with that. God is a God of incredible creative variety. You know, we see this in all that he's made. I mean, um, you think about flowers and the diversity of flowers. Why didn't God just make like four flowers? I mean, there, there are so many species of flowers and there's no real evolutionary purpose for them. God is just like, seems like I love making all kinds of flowers or ants. You know, I, if I were God, I would have made one ant. You know, like, we only need one of those. Like, one kind, the six-legged creature who eats, who likes your food. Do you know how many species of ants there are in the world? 12,000. <laughs> so if God can show that much delight and variety among ants, I think that he can delight in all kinds of men and all kinds of women. Why should we expect anything different? And the overlap in the genders directs us how to include the exceptional person among us. See, we need to spread this word. Um, Equal, asymmetrical, unity and diversity. And for this reason, the overlap is not a thread. Uh, We can embrace the exceptional young person. And actually, for the church's benefit, we really, really need to. So um, we find a woman who loves rugby and video games, we should happily watch to see how femininity is expressed in her life. We find a guy who um, loves show tunes and make, drives by landmarks and not maps. We should like hold our breath to see how masculinity is expressed in him. You know, gender essentialism inevitably cuts people out from the body of Christ that 
are part of the way God designed them and loves them and made them and enjoys them. So, look, can you tell your kids this? Can you tell your children this? You're a boy, and God made you like that, and He loves you like that. You're, you are a girl, and, you know, if you like fixing engines, God loves that about you. You know, I think about how much damage has been done in the church of trying to, like, make people fit because we can't handle the diversity of the beauty of what God made. And what he has pronounced good, we pronounce bad. You know, how much could be undone? I I shudder to think of how much damage is done, and I hope that a lot can be undone by employing this. Um, In this way, um, you remember Peter Pan? Uh, I don't know why this has been in my head all week. Uh, J.M. Barry's creation, uh, the Neverland story, Peter Pan, and uh, he's, a, he's a, a boy who is never going to grow up, and he can fly, and he wears green. And uh, one of my favorite parts, though, of Peter Pan, I've been thinking about this for some reason all week in preparing this sermon, is thinking about um, how Peter Pan crows. Now, that's not a thing we talk about much, but he goes up to the top of the masthood of, of uh, Captain Hook's ship. You remember what he does? You know, like he's, it's, this, it's this expression of like incredible like joy and delight and like, I'm alive. You know, this is me. And I, I, want, I think that you have something to crow about this morning, to boast in, to delight in, to say this. Yeah. yeah. Men here this morning, you're men. Man, that is amazing. You are made in God's image. He delights in you. He made you as you are. And the way that you are made is something he takes great, great pleasure in. You don't need to be women. You're men. Something you should crow about. Women. I mean, wow. That's what Adam said in in Genesis 2. He breaks into a poem. You saw it on the, the slide. He breaks into a poem and the, the Jeff Radford translation of that is, wow. I mean, women, you are made in God's image. It is an incredible thing to be a woman. You do not need to be a man. You are delighted upon by the God of the universe who made you in his image and likeness and made you just the way you are and says that is good. See, today, no voice in our culture is going to join in and say, yeah, you know, uh, Equal, asymmetrical, unity, diversity. Nobody, nobody's going to say, okay, that's crazy. And yet, um, it is such a gift to be, to be you today. Men and women, boys and girls, you have something to shout out about today. You have something to boast in, to enjoy. Your heavenly Father is very fond of you. Arr, 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 arr! In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's celebrate our God who loves 